Merry Christmas. Thank you to our team for leading us and singing this morning in worship to our King. How beautiful that was, these glorious songs. What a, what a joy it is to sing of the glories of the incarnation of our Savior. One of those lines that we just sung is so striking and it is so marvelous. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands. It is truly humbling to consider that God the Son would willingly subject himself to such humble circumstances. God the Son taking on a human nature, being born of a virgin, being held in her hands. I want to take you for a moment to that scene of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. Let's turn there. We want to look at some of the details that surround this birth of Jesus. We'll begin in verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What we have here is a decree that's issued for a census to be taken. This census required for people to go back to the town where their family originated from. And so Joseph has been living in Nazareth in the northern part of Israel, but his heritage traces back to the south in Bethlehem. And so because of this census, Joseph heads south with Mary to register his family there in Bethlehem. It is God's providence at work through this census that positions Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem at this precise time. While Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem for the census, Mary gives birth to Jesus. This town where Jesus is born is of major significance. It had been the hometown of Israel's renowned King David. And King David's reign over Israel was seen as one of the brightest spots in the history of Israel. And so the town of Bethlehem had come into the spotlight by virtue of being King David's hometown. Luke is cluing us in here on the fact that there is a backstory here. It's significant that Jesus happens to be born in Bethlehem, not where Joseph and Mary had been living all this time, but in a completely different town. It is because the life of David and his reign as king was was serving as a backstory that gives significance to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Now, did you know that Scripture also gives us a backstory to that backstory? That is, just as the narrative surrounding David's life provides a backstory for the significance of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, there's actually a backstory to David himself being born in Bethlehem. Those of you who have been participating in our Advent reading as a church together this month, in God's providence, you've already gotten an opportunity to begin wading in these waters a bit with one of our readings from a couple days ago. What I would like for us to do in our time here this morning is to take us to the events that led up to the birth of King David in Bethlehem. We're going to spend time looking at a book in the Old Testament the book of Ruth, 
I invite you to turn there with me. If you start from the beginning of the Bible, Ruth is the eighth book in. It's right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel. It is a small book, yet it carries grand significance in terms of the overarching narrative of the Bible. It has direct implications for the life of David, which in turn has direct implications for the birth of Christ. As we venture into Ruth, I want to take you back to Bethlehem before David was even born. I want to introduce you to some of his ancestors. I want you to see the providence of God at work in the lives of those ancestors. Long before Joseph and Mary traveled down to Bethlehem, long before David was even there in Bethlehem, I want you to see how God was guiding the events of history by his providential hand to accomplish his purposes in the world for his glory and for the good of those who trust in him. Let's look at Ruth in chapter 4. And our text will be Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of this season, reflecting on the incarnation of Christ. What a glorious, wondrous miracle. Help us this morning to see the glory of your providence at work in the lives of your people. Help us to grasp the majesty of Christ, whom you sent as the Savior. May you be glorified in our time here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ruth 4, verse 14, speaks of the Lord's provision of a redeemer. This term for redeemer shows up in various forms a total of 22 times over the course of this book. That's a lot of repetition for a four-chapter book. This repetition indicates emphasis and marks redemption as a thematic element in the book. And so as we work our way through our passage this morning, we will identify the need for a Redeemer, the provision of a Redeemer, and the significance of the Redeemer. So first, let's consider the need for a Redeemer. Again, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14, we see great celebration surrounding the Lord's provision of a Redeemer. But what exactly is this concept of a Redeemer? And why was one needed here? I want us to start looking into these matters by taking us back to the beginning of the book so we can get oriented to the situation that the book addresses. We'll begin in chapter 1 of Ruth, in verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, 
that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Well, look at that. A family from where? From Bethlehem in Judah. And they're living during a time when the judges governed. This is a period of a downward spiral in terms of moral decline in Israel. The people are becoming increasingly worldly and idolatrous and rebellious in those days. They sin against God. He allows surrounding peoples to oppress them as a consequence and to drive them to repentance. Then they cry out for help. God sends a judge to deliver them, and then it's rinse and repeat. They keep going through that cycle. And all the while, it is declining down like a spiral. And in light of this observation about that period in Judges, the famine in the land is likely a consequence, a sign of covenant violation by Israel. And this family leaves that situation. They move out to the land of Moab. And that's not necessarily the wisest idea. In Moab, they worship the false god, Chemosh. Moab is an enemy of Israel. At one point during the days when the judges governed, Moab actually oppressed Israel severely for 18 years. After moving to Moab, Elimelech and his two sons die, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law all as widows. Let's continue on with the narrative, picking up in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman, women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi has not completely lost faith in the Lord, but she has given room to cynicism and to despair. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. Mara means bitter. And so in verse 20, Naomi is basically saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. She has the mentality that God is against her. While she has lost a lot, she doesn't realize yet what she has gained in a daughter-in-law like Ruth, who refuses to leave her. Ruth is loyal. And though a Moabite, Ruth has become a believer in the God of Israel. The Lord will bring immense blessing into Naomi's life through Ruth that she has no idea about yet. She's so focused on the tragedies in her life that she is losing sight of who God is. Do you ever find yourself being like Naomi? You start to face hard times and the cynicism starts to kick in. You start to get mopey and to pity yourself. You get into the mindset that God has turned against you. Perhaps you get like Asaph in Psalm 73. Let's turn there. Asaph is wrestling with his observations in life. We'll begin in verse 12, Psalm 73, beginning in verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph is basically asking the question, why do the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer? Is God in favor of the wicked and against the righteous? We can become guilty of possessing that kind of short-sighted perspective when we go through hard times. Perhaps more than we would like to admit. Perhaps more than we even realize. Asaph's thinking is eventually sobered, though, when he looks beyond the immediate situation in life. In verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Asaph goes to the place of worship and he starts to think about who God is really is in his nature and in his character. Then he says, continuing in verse 17, Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. It may seem like the wicked are prospering, but God will settle everything in the end. 
The wicked may at times seem like they're getting away with their wickedness and even being rewarded for it, but the truth is that God will judge the wicked. And God also has good reasons for his people going through the hard times that they face. Naomi, the one who says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, is going to be pleasantly surprised by what God has in store for her future. There's coming a time when she can look back and wonder, what was I thinking? How wrong was I? How wrong was that mentality about God and his disposition toward me and what he was doing in my life? Learn from the life of Naomi and and from Asaph and from many others in the scripture that suffering is to be expected as we live life in a fallen world. Even for those who are loved and favored by their faithful covenant-keeping God, God will settle those seemingly unresolved things at some point. Perhaps we may not even see that until we pass on from this life. But he will settle every matter. Well, coming back to Ruth, by the end of chapter 1, Naomi and Ruth have traveled back to Bethlehem from Moab. They have lost the men who were providing for them. They have a property to come back to, but not much else. In chapter 2, verse 2, we see that Ruth is going to venture out to see if she can glean some grain for them since it's the beginning of the barley harvest. There's presumably nothing on their own property to harvest since they've been gone for several years and have just returned. But there was a law in Israel that people should not harvest everything that is produced on their land. But they should leave some behind for travelers and for the poor and needy, for the vulnerable to glean. This was a gracious provision in the law given by God. It was for people in situations like Naomi and Ruth. And so Ruth, being a virtuous woman, sets out to glean grain from others' fields as a means of securing food for them. And this is where the need for a redeemer would come into play. God established the role of a redeemer as a way to ensure the protection of the vulnerable and support and care for those who had suffered great loss. This role is also referred to as a kinsman redeemer. A man fulfilling this role would look out for the various needs of his relatives in this manner. Um, Among a number of different functions that a redeemer could fulfill toward a relative, there are two major ways that a redeemer would be of benefit to these widows in their particular situation. The first and more immediate concern has to do with their poverty and their property. If people fell into poverty, they could sell their land in exchange for funds to live on. And there was a provision in the law found in Leviticus 25 that gave the nearest male relative the place to purchase the property in that situation and to keep it within the family. It was basically like a lease that he could use to generate more profit as he uses that land and eventually the ownership would revert back to the line of the original owner in the year of Jubilee. A second issue for Naomi and Ruth in their situation was that there was no male to carry on the family line of the deceased. So this is the situation in which Naomi and Ruth find themselves. To have a redeemer come along and redeem them would be an immense blessing of provision and protection for them ultimately from the Lord. Well, now that we've examined the situation and seen the need for a Redeemer, next I want you to see the provision of a Redeemer. The Lord will provide a kinsman Redeemer to meet the needs of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi has no idea what good the Lord has in store for her and her family line. She will come to see how 
baseless her cynicism and despairing has been. There's a little hint at the beginning of chapter 2 as to the Lord's provision of a Redeemer. Beginning in verse 1, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Hmm. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Of all the fields that Ruth could happen upon, she just happened upon the field of a man who would qualify as a redeemer. That's God's providential hand guiding along these events to bring this about. Boaz is a very godly man, and he is also a man with the means to purchase the land and to care for these women. He's the kind of guy, he just speaks blessings to his workers, and he shows great compassion to Ruth, incredible compassion for her. And when Ruth returns from that time of gleaning, she informs Naomi whose property it was that she'd happened upon. And Naomi knows Boaz is a qualified redeemer. We see that in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Literally, he is a redeemer of ours. Naomi starts to perk up a bit. The Lord has seemingly provided for them with this connection to Boaz. Ruth has been allowed to to glean abundantly from his property and to do so in a safe way. He looks out for her. She's not going to have to go to other properties and, and risk being harmed. But she's in a safe place where she can continue to come and to glean. And there is a potential for the Lord to use Boaz even more than just this initial provision that's already coming through him. Boaz could be a redeemer for them. In chapter 3, Naomi devises a plan for Ruth to invite Boaz to consider marrying her. He will be sleeping out at the threshing floor where he's been working to, to get his grain separated from the chaff. He's sleeping out there perhaps to watch over his grain so it doesn't get taken by anyone. And Ruth is to approach him there. She's to uncover his feet so his feet get cold, it wakes him up. And then she's to ask him to consider redeeming her. Being the godly man that he is, Boaz is eager to help her. But there's a twist. There's a closer relative who should be given the opportunity to act as redeemer first. Boaz pledges to get her redeemed one way or another, either by that closer relative or Boaz will redeem her himself if that closer relative passes on that opportunity. And that brings us to chapter 4. Boaz has an excellent strategy. I mentioned earlier that there are two particular ways that Naomi and Ruth needed the service of a redeemer. First, Naomi needs a redeemer to buy her property so they can have funds to live off of. And second, Ruth needs a redeemer to marry her and to produce an heir who will continue the line of Elimelech and her deceased husband, Malon. So Boaz first makes the closer relative aware just of the need to redeem the property. In verses 3 and 4, Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, 
by it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the, the closer relative immediately says, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll redeem the property. And then Boaz comes to what we see in verse 5. And he says, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. When Boaz brings Ruth into the picture, the closer relative says he's out. Never mind. I don't want to jeopardize my inheritance. And so Boaz then secures his position as redeemer before the elders at the city gate, and it is official. The, the seeming wrinkle that came into the, the situation and into to the way of getting the plan fulfilled, it gets ironed out. It gets smoothed out. And now the way is cleared for Boaz to serve as the kinsman redeemer. In verse 9, he makes it official concerning the purchase of the property. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And picking up in verse 13, we see him fulfill that other need to provide an heir, one who would continue the line. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter's in, daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Boaz marries Ruth, and the Lord blesses them with a son. What a glorious resolution to the situation that Naomi and Ruth had found themselves in. Naomi had been saying, call me bitter. The Lord is against me. But in the end, she was pleasantly surprised to see how the providence of God unfolded in her life and in the life of Ruth and in the life of Boaz. She learned that the Lord provides in his way and according to his timing. We need to learn from what we see happen here. These things are written for our admonition, for our encouragement. The Lord is faithful to take care of his covenant people who trust in him. You falling on hard times doesn't change God. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. It doesn't change his promises. We don't worship a little God that can only glorify himself by giving his people comfort and ease and good health. That God is too small. We worship the biblical God who can bring forth blessing and glory out of tragedy, who can bring forth beauty from ashes, who can renew our inner man even as our outer man is decaying. Paul prayed for the Lord to take away an ongoing difficulty in his life that he described with, with the picture of it being a thorn in his flesh. And God basically said, no. I put that there because you need it to grow in humility. And Paul learned the lesson there that God's strength shines brightly in our lives 
against the backdrop of our weakness. The Lord doesn't always give us what we want because He knows what we truly need. He knows what will most glorify His name in our lives and He knows what will lead to the prosperity of our souls. The Lord provided for Ruth and Naomi. It wasn't always comfortable. It didn't always seem bright. But we get to see how it worked out in the end. God settles it all. And we can be assured that those things that seem left unresolved in this life will find resolution in the end, even if that resolution has to wait till we pass on to glory. So we've looked at the need for a Redeemer. We've seen the provision of a Redeemer. And now I want us to consider the significance of the Redeemer. Look back at verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I want you to notice who's being called the Redeemer there. It's the one that Ruth gave birth to. Verse 17 indicates that his name is Obed. His name means worker, servant, worshiper. Most likely the aim of that name for him is for him to be godly like Boaz and like Ruth. Those who serve the Lord working heartily unto him and reflecting his gracious care. Like Boaz, Obed will look out for Naomi. He will be a blessing to Naomi in her old age. As he grows up, he will make sure she is cared for. Also in verse 17, the women even go as far as to say in reference to this child, a son has been born to Naomi. Her sons had died. It seemed like the family line was done. But in the end, God provided another who would carry forward the family line like a son to Naomi. The rest of verse 17 notes that Obed is the grandfather of King David. And then the remainder of the book consists of a genealogy that runs through Obed to David. The words, now these are the generations, would cause one familiar with the Old Testament to look back to the book of Genesis. This kind of language is repeated there several times, tracing from the first man, Adam, onward through Seth, Noah, to Terah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the sons of Jacob from whom the twelve tribes of Israel descend. Jacob is the grandfather of Perez, who is at the top of the genealogy in Ruth. And who is between them? Who is between Jacob and Perez? It's Judah. And what is significant about that? Turn with me to Genesis 49. Here, Jacob is speaking prophecies concerning his sons. And I want us to look particularly at a a portion of what he says with respect to Judah, beginning in verse 8. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, for the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter not departing from Judah is a way of saying that Judah's line is a royal line. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be an eternal king reigning on his throne. But the promise of a kingly line doesn't start with that covenant that God made with David. It traces back even to Judah. So, what is the significance of the Redeemer, particularly Obed? His birth brings resolution most immediately there in the narrative to Naomi's plight. Naomi received a tangible indicator of the Lord's faithful love for her, his redeeming love for her. It had been there all along, even though she struggled at times to believe it. But Obed possesses a further significance as well, in that the kingly line runs through him from Judah to David. God in his providence brought Boaz and Ruth together, and they bore a son who would continue the line, that kingly line from Judah to David. Neither Naomi, nor Ruth, nor Boaz could have fathomed the significance of what was taking place in their lives. It was much bigger than them and their situation. It is a link in the chain of events that God, by his providence, was bringing about to fulfill his redemptive purposes in the world. The birth of Obed was a joyous occasion for his family and his community. But his birth points forward to another birth of infinitely greater significance. A birth that is the source of an infinitely greater joy. It points forward to the one who will be a redeemer king. Turn with me to Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, King Jesus. It traces Jesus' lineage going all the way back to Abraham, showing us that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham who will bring about complete fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. He will bring blessing not only to Israel but to all the families of the earth. He will redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The line runs from Abraham down through Judah, through Obed, to David. This is a kingly line. And the, and the portion here uh, in this genealogy from Perez to David in Matthew is basically a replication of the one found in Ruth. It's as if Matthew wants us to think back on these events that we've been exploring in Ruth as we think about this genealogy of Jesus and God bringing all of this about the backstory of the backstory. The genealogy then runs from David all the way down to Jesus, showing that Jesus is the Messiah that the Lord promised to David would reign on his throne eternally. Now, everything we've looked at so far has demonstrated that Jesus traces back to David and even to Obed, who were both born in Bethlehem. But... There's nothing we've looked at so far that required that Messiah be physically born in Bethlehem. Yet early on, we read in Luke 2 that God had providentially positioned Mary in Bethlehem via the census for precisely the purpose that Jesus would be born there and not where they had been living all this time. 
It is Micah 5, verse 2, that says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. One who is eternal in nature will be born a king in Bethlehem. It is remarkable to consider how all of these events and their details that we've been considering this morning were guided along by the providential hand of God to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. Naomi, holding little Obed, could ask and wonder, what child is this? Everything seemed to have fallen apart in her life, but God had orchestrated a future that she could never have dreamed of through this little child that she held. And yet as remarkable as the birth of Obed was, it pales in comparison to the one of whom we sing what child is this. Obed's birth gets its significance from the fact that it sets up for a birth of the one whose birth will eclipse his. It is a birth like no other. It is a birth that God brought about in the life of another godly man and another godly woman like Boaz and Ruth, the lives of Joseph and Mary, and he gave them a child. But this was like no other birth. It is a birth in which the Word, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Spurgeon said, it is a miracle of miracles that the infinite should become an infant. This is what happened in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God the Son, the infinite, added a finite human nature to himself. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, born into humble circumstances, experiencing real human weakness and need. This miracle of miracles says something about the heart of God. Why would God the Son choose to subject himself to something like this? What does it reveal about his heart? It reveals that his heart is to redeem sinners. He delights to redeem sinners whom his Father has given to him to save. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all includes every one of us. No one ever had to teach us how to lie. No one had to teach us how to lust. No one had to teach us how to live according to selfish desires. We are born sinners. And as sinners, we live our lives in rebellion against the God who made us. And our sin against an infinitely holy God deserves everlasting punishment under God's righteous wrath in hell. Because of this, we have a deep need for a Redeemer. And God has provided a Redeemer. Jesus was born for this purpose. He came to save his people from their sins and to spare them from the wrath of God that they deserve for their sins. Jesus was born to die. That was the redemption price that Christ willingly paid so that those who trust in him can be delivered from the judgment that they deserve. Redemption required that God's own son would bleed 
and die on the cross. The sinless Son of God, dying like the worst of criminals. And then, three days later, he rose and he demonstrated that he had defeated sin and death for his people. If you've not repented of your sin and trusted in this Redeemer to save you, I urge you to do so today, to turn your back on a life of sin and to trust in Christ and to follow him. For those who are trusting in Christ, my encouragement to you is simple. Be in awe of who God is and what he's done to save you. As you reflect on the providence of God, orchestrating all these details that we've been looking at that culminated in the birth of Christ, I want you to be left in awe. As you ponder the majesty of what actually took place in the incarnation, that we can never fully wrap our minds around what happened there. I want you to marvel. And as you exchange and open gifts, let it drive you to think about the greatest gift when God gave his son for you. And thank him and praise him. Worship your redeemer and king for he is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do marvel as we consider these events in Bethlehem all that time ago. Your provision of a Redeemer there and the significance of of what that pointed forward to in the greater birth, the birth of Christ. The Redeemer who would come to save his people from their sins. What a glorious Savior. What a glorious miracle in the incarnation. What a glorious death and resurrection that he has accomplished to deliver his people. Fill our hearts with awe and praise and thankfulness as we consider these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.